Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Idiot Book Nook podcast. My name is Blazewing and my pronouns are she, her, and they, them. I am the Reading Dragon and my pronouns are she, her. I am Lady Punnett. My pronouns are primarily she, her, sometimes they, them. I am eating a snack and I do apologize and I will not make any noise like last episode when you guys could hear me trying to clean up. All the rappers. You're good. <laughs> You're good. We are. At least that is not as loud. <laughs> I was trying to be all discreet and stuff, and then I noticed that Blaze Wing stopped talking altogether. I'm like, oh, did I cut out or something? I look at you guys are just staring at me. <laughs> um, we are three ADHD adult brains trying to make it through stories in order to read through them oh, and have discussion. Sometimes we stay on track, sometimes we don't. We go off on wild tangents. It's absolutely hilarious. I've been told to sit down and listen to us talk. Um, but if you'd like to follow us on social medias and find out what our individual projects are, you can follow Lady Punnett at L-A-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Paulina dot Avalon. You can follow The Reading Dragon at L-A-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash The Reading Dragon. And you can follow myself at L-A-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Blazewing 2010. If you would like to take a look at our podcast feed and or leave us a voice message for viewer slash listener feedback episodes, you are more than welcome to do so at anchor.fm slash idiot dash book dash nook. And if you'd like to take a look at our website, which should link to pretty much everything we got going at the moment, uh, you can find that at uh, idiotbooknook.wordpress.com. Woo! Yay! Um... So yeah, um, we are three ADHD adult brains that try to stay on track as we, uh, as we read through stories and have discussions. Sometimes it's hilarious. Other times it's just, where the fuck are you going with this? And basically it's ADHD in all its glory. Sometimes it gets real philosophical. It can. Yeah, absolutely. That being said, we are coming up on chapter 11 of the Amulet of Samarkand, which is... The first book in the Bartimaeus trilogy series. This is chapter 11 and episode 27. Narrator, please take it away. The Bartimaeus trilogy, book one. The Amulet of Samarkand, written by Jonathan Stroud. Narrated by the Reading Dragon, voice acted by the Reading Dragon, Blazewing 2010, and Lady Punnett. Chapter 11. Downstairs. Well, that was surprising. Framing your master, are you? Nasty. I'm not framing him. I just want it safe beyond whatever security he's got. No one's going to find it there. He paused. But if they do... You'll be in the clear. Typical magician's trick. You're learning faster than most. No one's going to find it. You think not? <laughs> we'll see. Still, I couldn't float there pain all day. I encased the amulet with a charm, rendering it temporarily small and giving it the appearance of a drifting cobweb. 
Then I sank through a knot hole in the nearest plank, snaked as a vapor through the empty floor space, and in spider guise, crawled cautiously out of a crack in the ceiling of the room below. I was in a deserted bathroom. The door was open. I scurried down, I scurried toward it along the plaster as fast as eight legs could. I scurried toward it along the plaster as fast as eight legs could carry me. As I went, I shook my mandibles at the effrontery of the boy. Frame another magician. That wasn't a well, That was part. That was part and parcel. It came with the territory. Framing your own master, though. Now that was out of the ordinary. In fact, possibly unique in a wizard in in a wizardling of twelve. Sure, the uh, sure as adults, magicians fell out with ridiculous rea- regularity. But not when they were starting off. Not when they were just being taught the rules. How was I sure the magician in question was his master? Hold on a second. There's a there's a footnote. Oh, magicians! Sorry. Magicians are the most convincing, conniving, jealous, duplicitous, duplicitous, duplicitous group of people on earth, even including lawyers and academics. They worship power and the wielding thereof, and seek every chance they can to undercut their rivals. At a rough guess, about at a rough guess, about eighty percent of all summoners summons. summons have to do with carrying out some skullduggery skullduggery against a fellow magician, or even defense against the same. By contrast, most conf- I'm sorry, it's kind of small. Confrontations. Confrontations. Yeah, I'm sorry. One second, it's doing weird things. Where am I? Da, 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 da. Went too far down. Technology is great when it's just working the way you need it to. Where am I? That is an excellent question. Shoot, want, where is it? Do you want me to finish it for you? No, 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 I got it. I just, it went too far up when I made it bigger so I could actually read the stupid thing. Give me a moment. Here we go. Uh, confrontations between, I'm going to restart that. By contrast, most confrontations between spirits aren't personal at all. Simply because they do not occur of our own free will. At that moment, for instance, I do not like, dislike Farquarl, Farquarl particularly. Well, actually, that's a lie. I loathe him, but no more than I had before. Anyways, our mutual hatred had taken many centuries, indeed millennia, to build up. Magicians squabble for fun. We really had to work at it. Damn. How was I sure the magician in question was his master? Well, unless age-old practices were now being dropped 
apprentices were being bussed off to boarding school together, hardly likely. <clears throat> there was no other explanation. Magicians hold their knowledge close to their shriveled little hearts, coveting its power the way a miser cuts gold, and they will only pass it on with caution. Since the days of the Median Magi, students have always lived alone in their mentor's house, one master to one pupil, conducting their lessons with secrecy and stealth. From ziggurat to pyramid, from sacred oak to skyscraper, thousands of years pass, and things don't change. To sum up, then, it seemed that to guard his own skin, this ungrateful child was risking bringing the wrath of a powerful magician down upon his innocent master's head. I was very impressed. Even though he had to be in cahoots with an adult, some enemy of his master, presumably. It was an admirably twisted plan for one so young. I did an eightfold tiptoe out of the door. Then I saw the master. I had not heard of this magician, this Mr. Arthur Underwood. I assumed him, therefore, to be a minor conjurer, a dabbler in fakery and mumbo-jumbo, who never dared disturb the rest of higher beings such as me. Certainly, as he passed underneath me into the bathroom, I had evidently exited just in time. He fit the bill of second-rater. A sure sign of this was that he had all the time-honored attributes that other humans associate with great and powerful magic. A mane of unkempt hair, the color of tobacco ash, a long whitish beard that jutted outward like the prow of a whip, and a pair of particularly bristly eyebrows. I can imagine him stalking through the streets of London in a black velveteen suit, hair billowing behind him in a sorcerous sort of way. He probably flourished a gold-tipped cane, maybe even a swanky cape. Yes, he'd look the part then, all right. Very impressive. As opposed to now, stumbling along in his pajama bottoms, scratching his unmentionables, and sporting a folded newspaper under his arm. Lady Punnett, you can take that if you want. Okay. Minor magicians take pains to fit this traditionally wizardly bill. By contrast, the really powerful magicians take pleasure in looking like accountants. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. What kind of accountants are we talking about? This is before spicy accountants were a thing. Thank you very much. This is a non-spicy accountant. Vanilla. I'm sorry, but I still, picture, I still picture like actual like some wiz powerful wizards actually looking like accountants. Spicy. Martha. I mean, oh, he he called just before closing the bathroom door. A small, 
spherical female emerged from the bedroom. Thankfully, she was fully dressed. Yes, dear? I thought you said that woman cleaned yesterday. Yes, she did, dear. Why? Because there's a grubby cobweb dangling from the middle of the ceiling with a repellent spider shulking in it. Loathsome. She should be sacked. Oh, I see. How foul. Don't worry, I'll speak with her. And I'll get the duster to it shortly. The great magician humped and shut the door. The woman shook her head in a forgiving manner, and humny light-hearted ditty disappeared downstairs. The loathsome spider made a rude sign with two of its legs and set off along the ceiling, trailing its cobweb behind it. It took several minutes, scuttering before I located the entrance to the study at the bottom of a short flight of stairs. And here I halted. The door was protected against interlopers by X in the form of a five-pointed star. It was a simple device. The star appeared to consist of flaking red paint. However, in an unwary tres if an unwary trespasser opened the door, the trap would be triggered and the paint would revert to its original state. A ricocheting bolt of fire. Sounds good, I know. But it was pretty basic stuff, actually. A curious housemaid might be frazzled, but not Bartimaeus. I erected a shield around me, and, touching the base of the door with a tiny claw, instantly sprang back a couple of feet. Thin orange streaks appeared within the red lines of the five-pointed star. For a second, the lines coursed like liquid, racing around and around the shape. Then, a jet of flame... Hold on. I lost my spot. Sorry. Then, a jet of flame burst from the star's uppermost point, rebounded off the ceiling, and speared down toward me. I was ready for the impact on my shield, but it never took place. The flame bypassed me altogether, hit the cobweb I was trailing, and the cobweb sucked it up, drawing the fire from the star like juice through a straw. In an instant, it was over. The flame was gone. It had disappeared into the cobweb, which remained as cool as ever. In some surprise, I looked around. A charcoal black star was seared into the wood of a sturdy door. As I watched, the hex began to redden slowly. It was reassembling its charge for the next intruder. I suddenly realized what had happened. <laughs> it was obvious. The amulet of Samarkand had done what amulets are supposed to do. It had protected its wearer. Can you stop it? Very nicely, too. It had absorbed the hex, 
without any trouble whatsoever. That was fine by me. I removed my shield and squeezed myself beneath the door into Underwood's study. Amulets are protective charms. They fend off evil. They are passive objects, and although they can absorb or deflect all manner of dangerous magics, they cannot be actively controlled by their owner. They are thus the opposite of talismans, which have active magical powers that can be used at their owner's discretion. A horseshoe is a primitive amulet. Seven league boots are a form of talisman. Interesting. Beyond the door, I found no further traps on. I found no further traps on any of the planes. Another sign that the magician was of a fairly low order. I recalled the extensive network of defenses that Simon Lovelace had rigged up, and which I'd broached with such easy panache. If the boy thought that the amulet would be safe behind his master's security, he had another thing coming. The room was tidy, if dusty, and contained, among other things, a locked cupboard that I guessed housed his treasures. I entered via the keyhole, tugging the cobweb in my wake. Once inside, I performed a small illumination. A pitiful array of magical gimcracks were arranged with loving care on three glass shelves. Some of them, such as the Tinker's Purse, with its secret pocket for making coins vanish, were frankly not magical at all. It made my estimate of second-rater seem overly generous. I almost felt sorry for the old buffer. For his sake, I hoped Simon Lovelace never came off. Javanese bird totem at the back of the cupboard, its beak and plumes gray with dust. Underwood obviously never touched it. I pulled the cobweb between the purse and an Edwardian rabbit foot and tucked it behind the totem. Good. No one would find it there, unless they were really hunting. Finally, I on it, restoring it to its normal amulet size and shape. With that, my assignment was complete. All that remained was to return to the boy. I exited cupboard. All that remained was to return to the boy. I exited cupboard and study without any hiccups, and set off back upstairs. This was where it got interesting. I was heading up to the attic room again, of course, using the sloping ceiling above the stairs, when unexpectedly the boy passed me coming down. He was trailing in the wake of the magician's wife, looking thoroughly fed up. Evidently, he had just been summoned from his room. I perked up at once. <laughs> this was bad for him. And I could see from his face that he realized it too. He knew I was loose, somewhere nearby. He knew I would be coming back. 
that my charge had been to return to him immediately, silent and unseen, to await further instructions. He knew I might therefore be following him now, listening and watching, learning more about him, and that he couldn't do anything about it until he got back to his room again with the pentacle. In short, he had lost control of the situation. A dangerous state of affairs for any magician. I swiveled, followed eagerly in their wake. True to my charge, no one saw or heard me as I crept along behind. The woman led the boy to a door on the ground floor. He's in there, dear. She said. Oh, one second, I seem to have lost. Also, I Look at this distinguished hands. gentleman. Just give me a second. Mm -hmm. What a well, handsomely well, distinguished gentleman, yeah. This is such a distinguished gent. I, I'm sorry for the podcast. They can't see, but I have my cat sitting in my lap. And he is the most distinguished of gentlemen because I just finished brushing him. And he has toe beans. Yep. He has interesting He's toe beans. He's loving those cuddles. Right. This kid loves cuddles. Notch, nugget, not so much. Mm hmm. Okay. The boy said. His voice was nice and dispotent. Just how I like it. They, they went in. Woman first, boy second. The door shut so fast that I had to do a couple of quickfire shots of web to trapeze myself through the crack before it closed. It was a great stunt. I wish some, I wish someone had seen it. But no, silent and unseen. That's me. We were in a gloomy dining room. The magician, Arthur Underwood, seated alone at the head of a dark and shiny dining table, with cup, saucer, and silver coffee pot close to hand. He was still occupied with his newspaper, which lay folded in half on the table. As the woman and the boy entered, he picked up the paper, unfolded it, turned the page crisply, and smacked the whole thing in half again. He didn't look up. The woman hovered near the table. Arthur, Nathaniel's here. She said. The spider had backed its way into a dark corner of the door. On hearing these words, it remained motionless. As spiders do. But inwardly, it thrilled. <laughs> Nathaniel, good. That was a start. I had the pleasure of seeing the boy wince. His eyes flitted to and no, no doubt, wondering if I was there. The magician gave no sign that he had heard, but remained engrossed in the paper. His wife began rearranging a rather sorry display of dried flowers over the mantelpiece. I guessed then who was responsible for the vase in the boy's room. 
dead flowers for the husband, fresh ones for the apprentice. Hmm, that was intriguing. Again, Underwood unfolded, turned, smacked the paper, resumed his reading. Boy stood, the boy stood silently waiting. Now that I was free of the circle, and thus not under his direct control, I had a chance to assess him more clinically. He had removed his raggedy coat and was soberly dressed in gray trousers and a jumper. His hair had been wetted and was slicked back. A sheaf of papers was under his arm. He was a picture of quiet deference. He had no obvious defining features, no moles, no oddities, no scars. His hair was dark and straight. His face tended toward the pinched. His skin was very pale. To a casual observer, he was an unremarkable boy. But to my wiser and more yondest gaze, jaundiced. there were, uh, and more jaundiced gaze, there were other things to note, shrewd and calculated fingers that tapped impatiently on the papers he held. Most of all, a very careful face that by subtle shifts took on whatever expression was expected of it. For the moment, he had adopted, for the moment, he had adopted a submissive but attentive look that would flatter an old man's vanity. Yet, continually, he cast his eyes around the room, searching for me. I made it easy for him. When he was looking in my direction, I gave a couple of small scuttles along the wall, waved a few arms, wiggled my abdomen in a cheery fashion. He saw me straight off, went paler than ever, bit his lip. Couldn't do anything about me, though, without giving his game away. I would just like to point out, it sounds like he was twerking. <laughs> and now I can't get the image of a spider twerking out of my head. So See, now you guys... You go ahead. So now you guys must live with that image in your heads too, since I had to suffer through it. See, originally I was thinking of those like really colorful tro uh, tropic spiders that like do their little like mating dance and, it, and, and make their abdomens look like a uh, little uh, uh, what is it um, rattle or something like that. And it's really mm -hmm. cute and it's really fun and with their color and their fluff, it's cute, super cute. But now I have that in my head. Thank you. <laughs> And now it's Deal mixing it. together to be super colorful spiders twerking. I have a cat. And it's a good kitty cat. And it runs, dance, dance, and it runs, dance, dance. Well, he can't dance right now. He's currently sleeping. But continuing on, because we're on a time crunch. so cute. I'm sorry. In the middle of my dance, Underwood suddenly grunted dismissively, slapped the back of his hand against his, against his paper. See here, Martha, he said, 
Make peace is filling the theaters again with his eastern piffle, swans of Araby. I ask you, did you ever hear of such sentimental claptrap? And yet it's sold out until the end of January. Quite bizarre. It's all booked up. Oh, Arthur, I'd rather want it to go. And I quote, in which a sweet-limbed missionary lass from Chiswick falls in love with a tawny ginny. It's not just romantic nonsense, it's damnably dangerous too. Spreads misinformation to the people. Oh, Arthur! You've seen gin, Martha. Have you seen one with dusky eyes that will melt your heart? Melt your face, maybe. <laughs> I'm sure you're right, Arthur. Makepeace should know better. Disgraceful. And do something about it, but he's in too deep with the Prime Minister. Yes, dear. Would you like more coffee, dear? No. The PM should be helping out my internal affairs department rather than socializing his time away. Four more thefts, Martha. Four in the last week. Valuable items they were, too. I... Valuable items they were, too. I tell you, we're going to the dogs. So saying, Andrewood lifted his moustache with one hand and expertly passed the lip of his cup underneath. He drank long and loudly. Martha, this is cold. Fetch more coffee, will you? Fetch? She this is not a dog, sir. I can't help it, I'm just reading what's on the page. I know. With good grace, the wife bustled off on her errand. As she, as she exited, the magician tossed his paper to one side and deigned to notice his pupil at last. Finally, the old man grunted. So, you're here, are you? Despite his anxiety, the boy's voice was steady. Yes, sir. You sent for me, sir? I did indeed. Now, I've been speaking to your teachers, and with the exception of Mr. Sindra, all have satisfactory reports to make on you. He held up his hand to silence the boy's prompt articulations of thanks. Heaven knows you don't deserve it after what you did last year. However, despite certain deficiencies to which I have repeatedly drawn your attention, you have made some progress with the central tenant with the central tenants. Thus, a dramatic pause. I feel that the time is right for you to conduct your first summons. <laughs> About that. About that! About that! <laughs> I'm sorry, did I spook you, baby? I'm sorry. He uttered this last sentence in a slow, resounding tone that were evidently designed to fill the boy with awe. But Nathaniel, as I was now so delighted to call him, was distracted. He had a spider on his mind. His unease was not lost on Underwood. The magician rapped the table preemptorily to attract his pupil's attention. Listen to me, boy. He said, If you fret at the very prospect of a summons, you will never make a magician even now. 
A well-prepared magician fears nothing. Do you understand? The boy gathered himself, fixed his attention on his master. Yes, sir. Of course, sir. Besides, I shall be with you at all times during the summoning in an adjoining circle. I shall have a dozen protective charms to hand and plenty of powdered rosemary. We shall start with a lowly demon, a natterjack impling. If that proves successful, we shall move on to a molar. Natterjack impling. An unadventurous creature that affects the semblance and habits of a dull sort of toad. Molar. Even less exciting than another Jack Impling. Were that possible? <laughs> we confused the kitty. He heard the sounds. And he's like, what's that sound, mom? I'm a ferocious, ferociously tired hunter. It was a measure of how unobservant this magician was that he quite failed to notice the flame of content that flickered in the boy's eyes. He only heard the blandly eager voice. Yes, sir. I'm looking forward to it very much, sir. Excellent. You have your lenses? Yes, sir. They arrived last week. Good. Then there is only one other arrangement we need to make, and that is... Was that the door, sir? Don't interrupt me, boy. How dare you? The other arrangement, which I will withhold if you are insolent again, is the choosing of your official name. We shall turn our attention to that this afternoon. Bring Lowe's no uh, nominative almanac to me in the library after luncheon. And we shall choose one for you together. Yes, sir. The boy's shoulders had slumped. His voice was barely audible. He did not need to see me capering on my web to know that I had heard and understood. Nathaniel wasn't just his official name. It was his real name. The fool had summed me before consigning his birth name to oblivion, and now I knew it. Underwood shifted in his chair. Well, what are you waiting for, boy? This is no time for slacking. You've got hours yet to study before lunch. Get on your way. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. The boy moved listlessly to the door. Gnashing my mandibles with glee, I followed him through with an extra special reverse somersault with octal hit kick. I had a chance at it now. Things were a bit more even. He knew my name. I knew his. He had six years experience. I had five that. And ten. Sorry. That say was the kind of odds you could do something with. Sorry, say that again. Hmm? Say that again. You uh, are breaking up and your camera just went all fucky. Hold on. I need you to bless the mic. I need you to bless the stream, Nacho. Okay. Please. Camera's back. Bless. And. Just say that line okay. again. 
Okay. You just got a few more lines to do. Yep. Okay. Uh, he had six years' experience. I had 5,010. That was the kind of odds to do something with. I accompanied, I accompanied him up the stairs. He was dawdling now, dragging each step out. Come on. Come on. Get back to your pentacle. I was racing ahead, eager for the contest to begin. Oh, the boots were on the other eight feet now, all right! And thus ends chapter 11 of the Amulet of Samarkand, and fuck! Fuck, you knew, fuck, fuck. <laughs> this could have been avoided if Nathaniel had decided, like, hey, you can call me Nate, because I don't mm -hmm. know if that's the same thing. It's like, the same do thing. you need to know the full name, or can it be a nickname, or like? Generally speaking, it is a full name, so you can utilize nicknames, middle names, uh, titles, or false names if you have it. Can you have a close enough connection to the false name? This also, means... yeah, but the... sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, but it still doesn't stop the fact that he now has Nathaniel's name, and that this could have all been avoided. If you told Mrs. Underwood, you can call me Nate. But he wasn't thinking about it at the time when he originally told her his name. And he didn't think to change that shit when he came into his obsession. He may not have known. Also, he could have looked at Mrs. Underwood while she was up in the attic getting him, because this means she pulled him from the circle, from the pentacle. <gasps> she pulled him from the- No, wait- she would have found him and pulled him from the pentacle. Unless she maintained the uh, little traditional... Oh yeah, no, that's right. She does come into his room. Unless he hid the pentacle. He would have been standing I... in the pentacle with him in the center. She would have pulled him out of it. Which means she has no magical knowledge. She doesn't know what the pentacle does. Maybe the pentacle can't be seen by, like, mundane... That Depending. Is, that is also an uh, that is also a thing. <clears throat> Either way, Nathaniel is now officially fucked. Nope, yes. nope, nope. I would like to point out, though. I would like to point something out that uh, he was allowed to leave the circle because he had already finished giving the order. So he still has power over him. Yep, but Bartimaeus now has Nathaniel's name, and on top of that. Bartimaeus is cheering for him to get back inside the pentacle, which means the pentacle is still there. It would have to be in order to talk to the demon, which means either she has no understanding of what it's about, uh, Miss Underwood has no understanding of what, of what the pentacle means, or she can't see it. Mm -hmm. Like, for all she knows, he could have just been practicing, especially... Mm -hmm. Because in that little conversation that he just had with Underwood, uh, Underwood said, Hey, you're ready to summon a demon now. Let's start today. I'm also wondering if he may have been balking at telling her what was going on because he didn't want to get in trouble because she'd tell uh, his master. But something as simple as, No, 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 don't call me that here. You can call me Nate. 
I think that would have tipped her off something was up. Yeah, yeah, but at that point, she may also understand that do not interrupt. Mm-hmm. But then again, I'm in the middle of something, Mom! But then again, the yeah, master basically. would have called and she would have had to explain that to Magician Underwood, who mm-hmm. would have been furious. Yeah. So, because we already understand, we already get, it's already kind of, um, prefaced throughout the chapters we've read so far that Martha, Mrs. Underwood, uh, understands enough about magician's magical society yep. being married to magician Underwood mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that certain matters should never be interrupted, like the conversations with apprentice or, or work things or actually practicing magic. So she probably knows better than to interrupt those things. However, um, like what we were talking about before from the previous chapter, if you guys remember the crack in the vase, yep. my mind is going towards if she does know anything about this, what's to say that he's not doing this for her because there is something else going on particularly between him and be, particularly between the Underwoods and he's trying to get her out. That could be as well. Because we have that theory already. I would like to point something else out too that uh, I think that Mr. Underwood might be hard of hearing. Maybe. Could be. Or have selective hearing. Because he acted like he didn't hear Martha at all. And then asked for coffee, even though, I don't know. That was I'm, that was odd to me. He's also being painted. Based, Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Um, based on what we have read of him so far, it would make most sense the selective hearing. Yep. Mm. He's also being painted as an ordinary wizard. Whereas Nathaniel has been painted specifically to stand out. Mm-hmm. Not to mention Bartimaeus is pointing out that uh, Underwood is considered second rate next to someone like Lovelace. Or even like Nathaniel here. Of course, Bartimaeus still is suspicious as to how involved Nathaniel is or how much of all of this Nathaniel has actually done on his own. He still suspects that Nathaniel is in cahoots with at least a different adult in the situation. Yeah. We also, ooh, we also, ooh, 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 real quick, ooh, one. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> What's your theory? What if it's his art teacher? Ooh. Or think about it. What if- think about it. If it's the art teacher, she would be the one that would for sure be able to show him how to make the correct sigils needed for it. That is And why true. he was pretty confident in the fact that there was nothing wrong with it. Like, he was shocked at first. But then he was like, they are sound, they are right, you are still bind by them. That is also true. And she is the only other person besides the Underwoods to know his name. Well, except now, Bartimaeus, of course. Yeah. We also have a reference for the flowers and what they represent. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Dead flowers for the husband, but fresh flowers for Nathaniel. 
Yeah. Which means the romance is dying. Not not dying much. The romance is the romance with the husband is dead. dead, but she has love for the kid. Which brings me back to the theory of Nathaniel doing this for Mrs. Underwood to try to probably pull them out of whatever situation is currently going on with Mr. Underwood. I will be right back. Mm -hmm. My cat is meowing. Okay. So. Would, especially just now in this chapter, um, he's further being painted as, and again, I'm sorry for making this reference, Mr. Dursley from the Harry Potter series. It seems like as this story progresses, he's becoming more and more inadequate as a legitimate magician because he's not aware of Bartimaeus's presence like a magician should be when an unfamiliar presence is in his domain despite he is contacts to see yeah and he is uh basically being a little bit more egotistical in this chapter in terms of a what would be stereotypically a 1950s husband would be or a, a, a 1950s granddad or a granddad that grew up in the 1950s with with those, with those uh 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 cis male uh heteronormative uh attributes mm-hmm. he's out for control and potentially power but he can't get the mm-hmm. power because he's not good enough Right. He is, however, so, a control freak. Yep. As but he's already been shown. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, as uh, was stated with uh, with Bartimaeus and how he was looking around thinking this is second rate. So it's making me wonder if uh, Nathaniel knows his master isn't very good or if he's not allowed to interact with other like magicians too much and it's kind of like the whole like child mentality like oh my mentor is better than your mentor because they don't have like a frame of reference to know so a thought because there was that encounter with the 13 year old girl and her little uh posse what if there is a deeper connection with her and Nathaniel is actually somehow involved with her? That would it's explain... Hmm? Go ahead. Go ahead. It would explain her interest in the amulet. Mm-hmm. What if Nathaniel was testing Artemis as to how loyal he can actually be into doing the tasks given to him? It's his sister. Dun dun dun! Look, all we know is that mention of a sister, but well, remember we don't know for sure because all we know is that Nathaniel's parents dropped him off when he was like six years old and stripped of everything. So for all we know, they could wait. She said they was thirteen. Yeah, she's Nathaniel's. It could have still happened. Like maybe they couldn't afford a second child. Mm Well, I was thinking more of, like, maybe she wasn't selected, like how that one tutor was like, no, I was never chosen. Right. So. 
because I'm interested with all this going on now if we'll see another appearance of that girl. Yeah. Only time is because I figure we would. Yeah. Only time is going to tell. And guess what? We'll We're out of time. We'll end up having to get to that next week. Yeah. As we create our buffer episodes. Mm-hmm. So, with that being said, we want to thank you very much for joining us for episode 27 of the Idiot Book Nook podcast and chapter 11 of the Amulet of Samarkand, the first book in the Bartimaeus trilogy. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow Lady Punnett at L-A-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Paulina dot Avalon. You can follow The Reading Dragon at L-A-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash The Reading Dragon. And you can follow myself at L-A-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Blazewing 2010. If you'd like to take a look at our podcast feed and or leave us a voicemail message that we can play in a viewer slash listener feedback episode, you're more than welcome to at anchor.fm slash idiot dash book dash nook. And you can check out our mm-hmm. website at idiotbooknook.wordpress.com. So Yay. For episode 27 of the Idiot Book Nook, I'm Blazewing. I am the Reading Dragon. I'm Lady Punnett. And we'll see you in episode 28 and chapter 12, titled Nathaniel.